we can't make other people be nice to us, can we? And we, we can't make the world suit us all the time. So I think happiness has to be an independent skill of the mind. And it is a mind thing. That I think that's where I'm getting to is it's a state of mind. And it's to do with our thoughts and emotions and reactions. And that's something we can train. And that's really what meditation is all about, is, is training how you react, how you think, how you feel. Welcome to Unquestionable with your hosts, Charles Paley Phillips and Sophie Green, where each week we dive into real and raw conversations with experts, creators, thought leaders and CEOs. With our guests, we'll be exploring some of the unquestionable truths behind psychology, mental health and relationships to gain a deeper understanding of human nature. So let's get into today's episode. Obviously, your books, which are fantastic, by the way, and your new book out is, I can see it behind us, it's called Handbook for Hard Times. But in both books, you talk about happiness. And I I wanted to start by asking what happiness means to you. It's such a big word, isn't it? And I suppose, yeah, it is a major theme of my my writing. Um, And I think I, I, I basically see happiness as a skill that can be learned rather than a product that is given to us by the world around us. You know what I mean? I think quite often people think of, we all think of happiness as something that will happen to us when the, the things go well. And I like to think of happiness as something we can do in terms of a skill. And I think it's kind of a moment-to-moment thing as well. It's not some huge achievement at the end of a struggle but more a moment to moment ability to stay positive and stay calm and enjoy enjoy the here and now that's a skill isn't it it's a trainable skill that's interesting you're saying that about that because i was thinking about the fact that um we often look at things in a very much more binary way like we're either happy or we're sad but actually any given day there are fleeting moments of both those things mm. um and that's something that we don't necessarily accept Possibly we, we're living in a cultural time where there's such an emphasis on comfort, feeling comfortable all the time, and obviously externally as well, in material comforts, we want to feel everything's going our way. And so it makes it harder for us to, to face hard times and face challenges. We've become quite vulnerable, haven't we, as a species? And feeling... Yeah like we're lacking control I think as well I think what you're talking about gives you more ownership and control of your happiness owning your experience but you know if your own if your happiness relies on everything happening around you and the way people talk to you or the way things go at work it's completely out of your control makes you very vulnerable absolutely we're incredibly vulnerable when we live a life that uh where our happiness is so dictated by things going our way because you, I mean you can obviously make efforts to to make your life go the way you want it but there's so much that's out of our control mm. particularly other people we, we can't make other people be nice to us can we mm. and we, we can't make the world suit us all the time so I think happiness has to be an independent skill of the mind and it is a mind thing that I think that's where I'm getting to is it's a state of mind and it's to do with our thoughts and emotions and reactions. And that's something we can train. And that's really what meditation is all about, is, is training how you react, how you think, how you feel. Because you talk in the book about being hardwired for bliss or to bliss. Um, and I was wondering how, how that kind of works in the, in the, I feel like as a society, and we've talked, touched on this a little bit, that we sometimes don't seek out happiness we might seek out like for example social media could be a good example where we we seek out conflict or doom scrolling things like that yeah i think when i when i mentioned in the book about the sort of hard wiring i, I was talking about a quite quite a um profound sort of buddhist concept that deep down inside we are hardwired to have total happiness Maybe that's why the word bliss is used a lot, but it really means a sort of total freedom, total happiness, the kind of inner liberation that's our sort of um, our essence. But we're we're so out of touch with that. We're, we're so caught up in 
in the waves of the mind, the thoughts, the emotions, the reactions. And, and like you say, are, are we perhaps focusing a lot on the negative? Doom scrolling, it's such a, it's a horrible term, but it's it so is, it is, yeah. It's so apt, isn't it? Where we just endlessly look through our phones for all the bad news and all the judgments and all the nasty comments. And yeah, the negativity seems to be quite uh, per persuasive and quite um, invasive as well. It kind of comes at us all the time through... I'm not anti-technology at all. I mean, we, we're using it right now. It can be used in a great way. But I think technology is like food. If you... We have to eat, and eating is good for us, but you don't want to just eat sugar constantly all day. You'll get ill. And, and I think we don't really have enough discipline with how we use technology. We're just kind of consuming it mindlessly often without thinking, well, shall I be a little bit more discerning about what I consume or how I consume or how often I consume as we would do with food? Mm. It's an interesting analogy, isn't it? Mm. It's mm. consuming. What? And the nourishment of it. Mm. Nourish, it. The nourishment of what we're consuming. Yeah, is it nourishing? Is it nourishing? So, so often it's not nourishing. So often the, the messaging that we're um, subject to is... is, is making us feel worse about ourselves and about each other and, th and that's it's quite destructive mm. i mean i suppose fear is a very lucrative industry really yeah. isn't it in terms of you know the news cycles and what we're seeing in the media and um that's how they sell products often as well is fear you know if you don't have this product then you're going to be left out and stuff and so yeah i feel like that's become a thing now we we are constantly living in fear would, would you say that negative emotions are often fear-based fear does seem to be at the root of so many things and as you say it, it's it's an easy way to get people to um do what you want them to do whether it be through advertising also through politics use fear as the kind of mode of control and sure, through 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 advertising, we we are having our anxiety kind of provoked all the time, even even in that subtle moment of being told, "Hurry up while stocks last." Mm. Mm. That that sort of <laughs> plugging into that that part of ourselves that is designed to worry about scarcity. Mm. That's a hunter gatherer thing. Oh my goodness, I might starve, so I need to you know stock up, and, and that's sort of manipulated a lot through the messaging that we see in, in the media as well as a feeling of um, being told that we're incomplete all the time oh you can't possibly be complete without the product I'm trying to sell you surely you need this to feel okay and without it you won't feel okay so we're told we're always told we are not okay without this product so I would say fear is is um fear anxiety even at a very subtle level is kind of driving our, our culture and um then as you say it becomes the source of so many of other negative emotions um our our um constant hunger for things is, is based on a fear of not having enough and our, our constant um irritation with things even anger and hatred comes from a fear of being attacked, a fear of being threatened. Mm, yeah, and then scrolling through social media, you've got jealousy and envy, and it's often fear of either losing something you've got, or again, like you say, fear of, of scarcity. Mm. So fascinating. I was wondering if we could just, going back a little bit, talk a bit about you and your journey just for the listeners that don't don't know who you are how did you how did you get so wise I wouldn't <laughs> so say calm I look at you look amazing you're uh, sat Giles and I both got our legs crossed and we're hunched very over very defensive like with our arms crossed <laughs> and you're sat so calm you know you're yeah. sat like you're in meditation I'm gonna change my my posture right I, now. I wouldn't say I'm particularly wise but I I um I'm very lucky to to have been taught so much about Buddhism and meditation and to be able to kind of share that and well you are wise to seek out that knowledge <laughs> Come on. credit where credit's due <laughs> I I I um I stumbled into this through through tremendous stress mm. I, I was never you know you hear about these people who are kind of spiritual seekers and they find monasteries and temples or whatever and that's great, but in my case, I just fell into a monastery because I was so desperate for help. 
and I needed somewhere to go. I was really burned out mm. very young. At 21, I was ready to just collapse. Wow, that's young. I, I, was, I was living such a frenetic lifestyle, and I was very unhappy, and I didn't know how to deal with my emotions. I was p bottling everything up and, and pushing everything down and trying to just stay busy so I wouldn't have to look at how unhappy I felt. And this this combined with a very unhealthy kind of party lifestyle really drove me into a state of burnout, a state of like a breakdown. And um, that's when I discovered meditation. Some Sometimes in the darkness you find some light. It's like, it can be like that, isn't it? And so I discovered meditation firstly through um, reading books. My mother is a Buddhist and, and my father too. And, um, but they'd never really sort of, told me much about it it was just there in the family background and then when I was ill I was ill for about four or five months after this burnout my mum had all these books on meditation I was reading them and getting very uh, inspired by what I was reading and then an old friend told me about a Buddhist monastery in Scotland which had recently uh, opened their doors to people wanting to be a monk or a nun for a year like a kind of training thing mm. Like a gap here. <laughs> yeah, like that. And and I thought, oh, that's 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 something I want to do and, and maybe would help me. And I was only going to do it for a year. I really had the plan to then go back to, I was living in New York at the time, go back to the States and carry on doing what I was doing. So I went there and I became a monk and loved it and stayed. That was 30 years ago. Um, so, so, so I did. I did the one year, and then I decided to do a second year, and then a third year, and then after I think three or four years like that, I decided this is actually something that really feels right for me, and I took lifelong vows. Mm. But initially, the the idea was just a short break, and then it became my life. Wow! Can you just talk about the lifelong vows a little bit? What? what Vows? Oh, are you allowed well, to you say? What you are? take a vow to to be a monk for your life, and the the monks' rules are. Um, I mean, you are you, so so. It's you're celibate, and you don't um, take intoxicants of any kind. And there are many other vows too, which which are around sort of ethical living, of not telling lies, not harming others, not stealing things. These are sort of rules of ethical behavior but I suppose the celibacy is the thing that's the most kind of alien to our, our normal culture mm. um, but people often uh, when they meet me and they, they know I'm a monk they're often sort of a little little bits uh, fascinated by all the things I can't do oh, you mm. can't do this mm. you can't do that and I think of it more as all the things that I can do or mm. my life's opened up to yeah. give me more time to do retreats and meditate and do all those things. So I find it a very, um, a very freeing uh, lifestyle. Um, obviously, when I started, it was a shock to the system because I was living a life that was so the opposite of monasticism. But I adapted and have found it very healthy for myself. Wow. That's absolutely incredible. And so young as well. You were yeah. very young yeah. To, yeah. to, you know, because I feel like most people probably do, if not quite the extreme of becoming, you know, a Buddhist monk, people discover like meditation, for example, mm. later in life when they're mm. sort of overworked or stressed or they've got kids and stuff like that. So to get to that point at such a young age, some might say that you were quite lucky, I guess. I think so. Yeah. It's like diving in the deep end so young. Mm. And then you have more time for the training, I guess. Um, yeah, I'm lucky. I'm lucky that suffering and burnout uh, led me to this lifestyle. Mm. I'm really lucky that that I found something positive in in the in that dark state. Mm. And so, when you say um, the training, mm. can you talk us through a little bit what that looks like? Yeah, I mean, the training is ongoing. It's it's. It, always training, learning, meditating, studying Buddhist philosophy, learning more about meditation, doing meditation. And then you have these very intensive training periods where you do retreats. So the, the retreats can be of any length, but they're often several months or even years. Um, the first retreat I ever did was, uh, was nine months long, and that was in my second year. And that was really hard, really difficult, because you were just alone with your thoughts mm. and 
And silent, I presume. Yeah, and you were pretty much silent and you are doing meditation all day. Um, and then later on, after being a monk for a few more years, I tried uh, a more, um, you could say, ex- extreme retreat. It was four years long, and that was um, in 2005. So these are examples of the kind of training. Um, yeah. But then also the training is every day and all your life. And right now in this moment, in this moment, training to try to work more on one's mind and work more on developing compassion and kindness in the moment, whatever one is doing and the life's experiences become training, whether you're working out here in the world. I do a lot of work and I write books and I give talks and all that stuff is also me learning as well as giving. Wow, it's amazing. I just think there's so much for people listening to learn from your lifestyle, even in micro ways. Yeah, I'm not uh, here to try and sort of persuade people to all become monks or or even Buddhists. But what I love to share with people is the beauty of meditation, the benefits of meditation and how you can practice it in so many different situations, whether you're a monk or whether you're um, a a parent or um, somebody in the working or somebody who's in a hospital ill or a prisoner or all these different environments. I've taught in prisons and hospitals and these kind of situations. And I love to share with people the value of meditation, especially in this climate now of stress and busyness and um, this very, very um, hectic search for happiness that we're all trapped in and doesn't seem to be working. It's not working, is it? It doesn't feel like it is. Well, we're we're the most materially comfortable we have ever been as a culture, not in all situations, but in certain areas of the world. We are incredibly materially comfortable and yet totally uncomfortable emotionally Mm. and and stressed and doesn't kind of match. Something hasn't added up. We've we've strived for so much and... So disconnected as well. So disconnected and so unhappy. And that's when the inner journey begins. Mm. And it could be anything, but meditations are really good in a journey. Yeah. So the word yeah. meditation is thrown around a lot nowadays. I mm. think everyone's everyone's heard of it. Everyone has their own idea of what it is. What for you? How would you define meditation? Well, it's a it's a training of the mind, and you're learning how to work with your thoughts and your emotions and your reactions. You're learning to train and transform your mind, and I think it's all based on the the an understanding that your mind is the most important thing in your life because you experience everything through your mind. It's like a filter. So if you can clean the filter in some way, if you can uh, change the filter into something more positive, what you experience will, will be seen in a diff- different way. And your thoughts and your actions and your words will come from a wiser, more calm place and you'll feel happier and more connected and you can develop compassion and empathy and forgiveness and all of all of those skills they're all states of mind uh but the the training of meditation is is it's like daily exercise it's like going for a run or going to the gym or doing something which we would do for our body but for our mind instead which is so important and so forgotten often isn't it to Mm. to think oh i should do something for my mind it's almost like we have that thought when we're really really falling apart oh i really need to sort my head out now but wouldn't wouldn't it be more effective to think of mental health as an optimization of who we are in each moment rather than waiting until we're really falling apart and then of course at that time too meditation can be helpful but right now meditation could be part of our work as human beings to to stay well in ourselves i think that comes down to a lot of things we've covered but in regards to that we are more reactive to situations or the world around us and you know obviously with meditation if you can take some ownership and be proactive so that you're not necessarily going to get to those periods where you will have to be reactive Mm, yeah yeah you're learning to stabilize the mind and and get more of a um i don't want to say control it's not like you're trying to control your thoughts but maybe to be less controlled by your thoughts 
I think it's all about being in the driving seat of your own mind because we're kind of driven rather than driving. Do you know what I mean? Mm. There's so oh, many definitely. thoughts and emotions that we have that we don't want to be having. So what's that about? Who's in control? Mm. It, it feels as if we're sort of in control of our lives but not our minds because our minds do all kinds of stuff that gets us into real trouble. Yeah, why would anyone want to feel angry or jealous or any other negative thing? Yeah, and but, yet it happens. Yeah, and we have control over it, but we kind of don't. And so so meditation is where you learn how to to gain more authority and power over yourself in a good way. Um, but it, it's, a re- it's a regular training. It's a daily training. It's not just a one-off experience here or there. It's, it's how to how to really keep working on the mind, both sitting down and also when you're moving around, because meditation is also to do with your daily life and uh, being mindful in different situations. Mm. Okay, so for those people like me, for example, who... Dabbled. Dabble. (laughs) I have to admit, when I... I've, for years, I've been off and on trying to meditate. I have to be honest... Whenever it comes to it, I always, whether consciously or subconsciously, see it as a waste of time because I live this busy life where I'm working constantly and I have emails to respond to and work to do. And then sitting and doing nothing feels like a waste of, you know, I use that in inverted commas, a waste of time. What advice would you give to somebody that has never (laughs) (laughs) meditated? This podcast is basically just a therapy session for me. It always is. I always turn it around. Yeah. <laughs> what advice would you give to somebody who doesn't meditate at all, has never meditated and has a busy life, kids, husband, <clears throat> wife, whatever, and is overwhelmed with the idea of meditating? I, t- I, I hear you. I understand that people would sit down and think, I don't have time for this. That's too many other things to do. And I, uh, it, if it would this be a waste of my time? I should be busy doing those emails and doing those other things. But if you can understand that taking time out to meditate will help you to function in the world better and more efficiently, then you would feel it's not a waste of time, but it's doing something that will help you to use your time in the right way. Mm. I mean, there are many studies that show that this endless multitasking doesn't actually work. It makes us just more confused and more stressed and we never get anything done fully but if you meditate you can live your life more fully and I don't know if we I I don't know if we really enjoy our lives that much because we're so busy with the past and the future and not really present Mm. and so if you understand that training in being present will help you to live a fuller life you wouldn't necessarily feel it's a waste of time you'd feel it's giving you something that will enhance and optimize your experience of reality in a positive way and, and, and help you to suffer less because we, we do suffer. And yeah, you could be having a really busy time and you could feel really productive and that you're on top of everything. And then life hits you in certain ways that just make you fall apart and we don't have the resilience. And that's when our meditation training would have really helped us in those moments. Yeah, because I guess there's also... Um evidence that meditation is good for your physical health as oh, well yeah. and, and helps because of you. stress i think we all know that stress is, is toxic for our body mm. and so if if there's something like meditation that can help us to reduce stress that will of course help us on a physical level and um it, we could see it as a, um a really healthy lifestyle we, we nowadays we're much more switched on to healthy lifestyles we we know about I mean, you're drinking water there you know about hydration you know that <laughs> we know to hydrate we know to exercise we know to eat the right foods and not eat junk food we're quite on top of it in that way and yet so so we could have a sort of toxin free life but what a toxic mind mm. i'm not i'm not saying we've all got toxic minds necessarily but if we don't think of detoxing the mind as well as the body, we're only doing half the job, aren't we? Mm. Well, yeah, if you think mm. of the phrase mind over matter yeah. or, you know, these um, symptoms that are kind of psychosomatic, the brain and the thoughts have a huge impact over how we're feeling physically. Everything in our life is dependent on how we think about it. You know, if 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 I asked you to write a list of the 10 things that are most troubling you in life 
or five things. I mean, we'd probably write a list of 50 things, wouldn't we? There's so many things that are we, we feel we're suffering because of this, because of this, because of this, or struggling because of this, this, and this. And then if I asked you to look at that list and ask yourself, am I suffering because of those things or because of my thoughts about those things? Mm. That's quite a revelation, isn't it? It's a simple shift of, of attention where you think, well, yeah, it's the how I think about how I feel about those and and thoughts and feelings you can change you can learn to be less driven by negative reactions you can learn it wouldn't make you passive it doesn't mean you kind of switch off any kind of reactivity and just sort of become a blank canvas it more means that you can learn to handle life differently because you'll have a better handle on your thoughts and emotions yeah I suppose your your baseline is at a healthier level yeah. i suppose most people tend to be operating at quite a low vibe base level so then when you do get those kind of mildly stressful situations i mean like just now i was talking about when you're already quite stressed and then you accidentally stub your toe or like your you know your drawstring gets caught on the door handle and you just absolutely lose it because you're already in such a state of stress we're, we're all living uh, lives where we're sort of running on cortisol and adrenaline those stress hormones and we're in this kind of mini experience of fight or flight throughout the day mm. as if we're being chased by miniature tigers all the time yeah you know small little moments of fight or flight <clears throat> throughout the day and that just builds up and we especially in cities people who live in cities are kind of more in that frantic stream of things um Although, you know, I went away to a four-year-long retreat on a Scottish island and I was stressed in the retreat <laughs> because I, I was then facing my own inner world of anxiety and I had a lot of depression at that time. And it really made me think it's not really anything to do with the outer world. It's all about what's going on in your head, mm. whether you're in a city or in a retreat as a monk. It's all about the mind. And if we can learn to train our minds that that's the answer to so many things if not mm. everything yeah I um would encourage people I used to do this thing called uh, uh it was my day of nothing and I started off as like telling everyone I'm gonna do it every every once a month or once a week or whatever it was where you don't do anything you know no no devices you're not allowed to even go for a walk you're not allowed to do chores around the house you literally sit and do nothing for an entire day the only thing you do is eat and drink um I did it once and it was so hard I haven't done it again <laughs> and it became from a weekly to a monthly thing it became like maybe I'll do it annually and then it's I'll do it every few years That's 10 years ago <laughs> yeah. do, you, do you remember when I did this yeah, yeah. it was a whole big thing I was telling everyone about it <laughs> yeah it's gonna change my life <laughs> honestly but <laughs> I would encourage everybody to do that at least once in their life to to understand like how powerful the mind is and how uncomfortable it is sitting with your thoughts. Also to to appreciate the difference between doing and being. Mm. So so we're always doing 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 mm. and there's very little time just to sit and be. Um but yeah, it it can be quite challenging to sit there with your thoughts. But then you then you start to understand the the need to do some work on your mind and you feel kind of encouraged to do that. Um, but I do find many people struggle to meditate. Okay, so there's this, the, the situation you mentioned where we've got the busy life and we think, I don't have time for this and I'm wasting my time if I do this. That's one, one area where people, you know, they, they don't want to meditate because of that way of thinking. And then the other thing that happens is people say, oh, I tried meditation, but I couldn't do it because my mind was too busy. I, I failed. I was rubbish at that. Mm. Or, or some people sort of define themselves as not qualified to meditate because they've got a particularly busy mind. Mm. It's like saying, oh, I, I can't play tennis because I've got like a wrist injury or something. <laughs> well, the thing about this busy mind is it's this very interesting topic. Is, is do we think meditation means you're supposed to have no thoughts? I think many people do. Yeah. When I started, I thought, oh, you're supposed to clear your mind. Mm. And I sat down and I thought, okay, clear the mind, clear the mind, clear the mind. Am I, is it, is it gone yet? Am I, am I meditating yet? Are my thoughts gone yet? It's just a constant monologue, isn't there? Well, and also I'd argue that the, the, the more you're telling yourself to clear them, your mind, the more thoughts that are pouring oh, in there. Totally. Mm. The louder they shout. Yeah. And then when you get that split second of silence, then 
the inner monologue jumps in. It's like, oh, I did it. Yeah. Oh, now it's come back again. <laughs> and and so so I would question that. I would say, do do we sit down thinking I need to clear my mind? What is a is that possible? And b is there any point to it? It's not possible. We know it's not possible. The more we try to still the mind, the busier it gets. And the second question is, what's the point? What, what, what would the point be of sitting down for 10 or 15 minutes and just going blank and then you carry on with your day? Okay, you had a holiday for your, from your thoughts for 15 minutes, but you're back. You're back in the drama again. So how did it help? So that's not meditation and it's, it's fighting a losing battle to try and meditate like that. Mm. So, so I think when people understand what meditation is and what it isn't, that clarifies a lot. They, they, they stop struggling so much. So instead of trying to clear the mind, you think more in terms of focusing the mind. And that's what I guess some people will then have a mantra. Am I right? In- mantra or breath or anything really simple in, in, in the moment of this present moment. Breath is a really good one. Or any, any physical sensation, even just sitting and feeling the chair under your body, uh, the reason why this is so effective is because um, the 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 wandering, distracted mind is, is sort of one thing, and then you've got the sensing of the breath is another thing, and they 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 can't happen at the same time. So you move, have to move from one to the other. So you move into the breath, and you're kind of away from the from the racing mind. But you're not trying to stop the thoughts; you're just diverting your attention, changing changing your focus, and focusing on your breath for a few seconds and then the mind starts up again and then you come back it's all about returning to the breath or mantra or whatever your practice is but every time you return you're getting strong yeah you, I mean you hear this word like grounding quite mm-hmm. a lot um, and again I think it's quite a vague word that people use you know if they're feeling heightened or an- anxious mm. or whatever it might be and then they ground themselves mm. like what is actually the definition of that what is what are you doing when you're ground you're feeling grounded or you're grounding yourself you're moving from rumination to interoception so you're moving from the the wandering distracted kind of gabbling mind into interoception is where you sense the sense sensing the feeling of the ground under your feet or you're using the sense perception rather than the the thinking mind mm. so you move into that sensing of the floor under your feet or the chair under your body and the reason it's so grounding as in you know bringing you into the here and now and feeling stable and feeling strong is because the part of the brain that deals with um, rumination and mental chatter and the part of the brain that senses the breath or the body are called competing brain networks you can't you can't be in the two at the same time it's one or the other so you move from one to the other, and that takes you away from that frenetic thought pattern. Oh, I didn't know that. That makes a lot of sense. It, it's really interesting, isn't it? And it, I've been it, doing it while you've been talking. Every now and then, I'll just sort of focus on my breath, and it it does. It takes you away from like whatever brings you into a state of emotion calm. you're feeling. And it, yeah. And it's not about blocking the emotions. It's not about blocking the thoughts. But it's about training yourself to be less sucked in by it all and then you can start to step back and have greater choice in terms of how you think and feel Mm. breathing is incredible and actually we probably don't breathe properly a lot of the time Mm. i think and i've heard stories and we might have discussed this that even like for example we've talked about this earlier social media you might be going to post something and you actually you're not breathing you've stopped breathing or you might be reading something and you stop breathing um, in those moments, I which found, again would heighten. I found those that feelings. when I'm ironing things. Oh, really? You can imagine these robes require a bit of ironing. They, they really <laughs> do, otherwise they look like a kind of tea towel. And I find that sometimes when I'm ironing, I catch myself holding my breath, and then I think remember to breathe. Sometimes mm. when we're really focused on something, like you say, a computer with writing, and you realise you haven't been breathing, it's not healthy, is it? So, I I do think that we we maybe need to think more about how we're breathing and and let that become a training. Mm. Yeah. You talk a lot in the book, um, your new book, about compassion. And I wondered how that works with meditation, how we can learn to be more compassionate 
through the practice of meditation. And what is compassion as well? Because again, I, I feel like a lot of these are words that I hear all the time, but I'm not sure I could actually give a proper definition of it, to be honest with you. And it means something different to everybody, mm. doesn't it? Exactly. And I think in the world of meditation and Buddhism, um, compassion is very, very important and emphasized a lot. And I think it's it's described as a skill of the mind, a, tra- a trainable skill, and something that works both ways in terms of having more compassion towards oneself and towards others. And the self part is is very much to do with modern life and how in this modern world we're so down on ourselves more than ever. I think particularly because of the inputs from the media and from social media, all of that sort of telling us we're too fat or too thin or too this or too that. And, and there's a sort of constant feeling of I'm not good enough or there's something wrong with me or everyone else is doing better so we're quite hard on ourselves and compassion is very much about self-acceptance and being okay with yourself and feeling good about yourself and also letting that expand out to others to to, to accept others to accept others how they are we, we live in a world of such judgment judging others they shouldn't be like this they shouldn't be like that and sure people are doing and have throughout history done really terrible things to each other and it's of course we can stand there and say that's a really terrible thing that happened sure but there's another level where we are just constantly um finding it hard to see the good in anybody Mm. and just seeing bad all the time and finding it hard to connect to others. Compassion is a connection with others and a, a wish to help them, a wish to be of help to the world. Compassion can make your life feel very different because the more you try to, the more you train in compassion, the more you think of your yourself as somebody who wants to do good and not, not, not in a kind of goody two-shoes kind of polishing the halo type way, <laughs> you know, being, but more real, more just real, real kindness in, in, in everyday life, being very sort of um, focused on that as you go through your life. But I think that the source of all of this is um, how you treat your own thoughts and your own emotions. We very tend to be very hard on ourselves internally when we have a thought or emotion we don't like. We feel ashamed of that or bad about that and we want to get rid of it. And when you can have this kind of resolving of your inner landscape inside yourself, that can spread externally as well and there are techniques for this and in my books I I talk about those techniques and explain them in quite a lot of detail so they can become practical tools Mm. yeah I guess when we're talking about um, judgment and viewing others in a negative light it it's often it goes hand in hand with self judgment anyway isn't it because often the way we view the world and the way we look at others and judge others is a reflection of how we see ourselves or stuff within ourselves that we've rejected and so in being more compassionate to yourself you actually probably do end up becoming more compassionate to others yeah I think how we treat ourselves how we treat others they're kind of interrelated aren't they Mm. and meditation is an amazing tool for training in acceptance and loving kindness both internally and externally um and i talk about this in two ways in in my book i talk about um how the meditation itself is going to to work with that because just working with accepting your thoughts and also working on compassion practices that help you to engender that sense of kindness towards yourself and others that's one area, but then I also talk about intention and motivation and build, building that into your practice so that you actually start and end each meditation session with a moment of setting the intention to be of benefit to others. You start your session by thinking, now, now I'm going to meditate for my own benefit and the benefit of others. And you end your session by mentally dedicating the practice to your own spiritual growth but also the benefit of others so you're constantly training in that intention to be of service and be of help and that becomes more and more of a reality as you go along so yeah it's a very powerful way of framing the meditation as well that you know that like you say it's not just for your benefit and that is 
obviously tenfold, but for the benefit of others. Yeah, I think it's very important because we don't want our meditation to become a kind of um, selfish process or sort of just um, trying to kind of feed the ego and feed the sense of self and the, the sense of what I want and what I don't want. We want to kind of move more into a compassionate state, which is a win-win situation because if we're compassionate, we, we ourselves will feel better. It's the only way to actually feel good. We know that, don't we, is when we're really connected to others and being kind, we feel healthier inside. When we're very wrapped up in self-interest, we don't actually feel that happy. Mm. We feel kind of desperate and uh, needy and... Um, vulnerable and even threatened. So compassion is a win-win situation rather than some kind of sacrifice. Mm. Yeah, I was going to ask you um, about community as well and the function of community and how that can be um, beneficial for our functioning in life around community. Can you talk a bit about like community and how obviously <laughs> using compassionate practices is obviously useful if you've got a tribe around that you, you yeah that we we have fallen out of that culturally so much haven't we the the the, the idea of um large extended families uh, communities tribe all of that we've become much more isolated especially in cities where we live in maybe in 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 streets with houses the house house touches the next house but you, and you you don't know who's on the other side of the wall mm. in blocks of flats where we're all next to each other but not next to each other, unconnected. And then we sort of are connected through social media but on a very different level with many friends we don't even know. Mm. They're sort of friends. And then there's a kind of digital relationship where we're very, very um, intentional about what we share of ourselves. And it's not really it's not a real relationship no, is it not authentic is not it too it can be but it's not always and mm. so we have become very connected but very unconnected and so in terms of community it's in, it really helpful when one can find a community and so communities of meditators groups where you join a meditation group or you work together for a charity there's a kind of group exercise of trying to do something positive in the world but then at a deeper level, especially if we can't find that physically, uh, compassion meditation turns the whole world into your community because you're trying to um, establish compassion for all sentient beings, which includes animals and insects and ev every life form. And that becomes your family. And you, you, you can practice meditations where you connect from the heart with all of existence and start to spread that idea of loving kindness and connection and then you are in a huge tribe and that can be enormously fulfilling yeah I need to cough I'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> That's easier. I had a tickle in my throat no worries. Like half an hour. Um, <clears throat> before we finish I was going to ask you for anybody listening who wants to who has enjoyed this conversation and wants to kind of have a go at meditation if it's their first time of trying it is there a simple kind of practice that they could do to start that process that they could learn from going forward well i i do think breathing is a great place to start um and that's that's a very um traditional and well-known meditation technique that everybody practices when they want to learn meditation and then they might branch out from there or they might stay with that and it's not really about breathing in any particular way it's not about deep breathing or slow breathing it's just normal breathing but bringing your mind into focus using the breath as your anchor is really effective because you can actually do that anywhere I mean we're breathing 24 7 mm -hmm. aren't we so it means that you have access to meditation where, wherever you go it's very different from things like yoga where you need a yoga studio or a yoga mat or doing certain poses, which is great. Yoga's great, but meditation's incredibly portable. You can take mm. it anywhere. You can be sitting on a park bench. 
because you're not making yourself breathe you're just noticing the breath that's happening already mm. but the reason why the breath is so is so helpful is because it's a constant thing that's there under the surface of your life and when you bring your attention to your breath you're really present and also you're going beneath the storyline of your life and into the reality of this moment and so then yeah you're focused on your breath and then your mind wanders, of course. It goes into distraction. That's normal. It doesn't mean you failed. But then you gently come back to the breath. You're with the breath again. Then your mind wanders. You come back. That constant returning to the breath. It might be a five-minute session. It might be a 10-minute session. And you're just coming back to the breath gently again and again. That makes you strong over time. It's an exercise that strengthens your ability to be present. It strengthens your ability to let go of the thoughts and emotions that are um, causing you trouble. In the meditation session, you might not be having troublesome thoughts, but you're just working with thought as, as a reality and working with how to change your relationship with thought. So breathing is a, is a good practice to start with, but it's so, so important to just breathe normally, no, no tension, not trying to breathe deeply or slowly, but just normal breathing, very natural. And I think that's a great place to start. But I think also... Um, to, to practice tiny microscopic moments of mindful awareness in, in your daily life is very important. And then how can you, going back to what we discussed at the beginning of this episode, we were talking about happiness and how we are in control of our happiness. How could you then, once you've started doing meditation and becoming more centred and present, what advice would you give to have more of a handle on your happiness if particularly for those people who are probably in a place in their life where they're quite stressed or overwhelmed or, you know, feeling feeling like they're drowning in work or relationship issues or whatever it might be. How can you start to get a handle on that before it's too late? Well, I think the, the, deepest, um, the deepest kind of happiness comes from learning what to do with your unhappiness, how to work with that. And that, that's the real theme of my new book is um, how to learn to be fearless in times of fear, how to learn to be, um, how, how to use hard times to help yourself grow. And it's very much about using meditation to um, meet challenges with a compassionate mind, to bring compassion into those situations. I think very often people want their meditation to be very nice and tidy and everything to be beautiful and lovely and that's not that's that's a very kind of escapist fantasy but mm -hmm. to be able to meditate in the stress of our lives means that we can meet that stress with a calm mind and the stress will change because it is a state of mind it's an attitude in one sense you could say suffering only is there because of the resistance to the situation if the resistance changes the situation changes I suppose also worrying is focusing on the future and Absolutely. sadness the past. But when you're breathing and you're ground, you're you can't help but be in that present in that and, present moment. And then you could say, okay, you're t you're telling me to be present, but what if in this present moment I'm in terrible pain? Mm. Don't tell me to be present. I'm in pain. That's a very um, very uh, understandable statement to make. But the beauty of these techniques is that you can be in the present in pain. And you can learn to be okay with that pain. Sure, you may need to go to the doctor, you seek treatment, all of those things. I'm not saying just be passive and give up. But we're living with pain sometimes. We're living with stress. We're living with discomfort. And can we live harmoniously with that? Can we use that as meditation? In the book, I, I, I talk about techniques where you, you breathe in the pain and, and breathe joy out and you transform the pain through meditation. So the present moment can be incredibly uncomfortable but it can be a doorway into something much deeper in terms of real happiness mm. through working into working into the pain with meditation yeah i'm glad that you said that and it's i think it's quite um common as well for people once they've decided that they're going to get a handle on their pain or their suffering and seek out happiness that almost then becomes this idea of like I should never feel any discomfort or unhappiness and I should always be happy and whenever something happens that makes me unhappy, I should just lock it away, you know, pretend it hasn't happened. Then you, you end up suppressing stuff, don't you? 
Yeah, exactly. But you know, there's I think there's power in learning to sit with an uncomfortable Definitely. emotion. Definitely. To sit with the discomfort and be okay with it and realize that you've been telling yourself a lot of stories about this this discomfort uh, or this unhappiness and when you go beneath the stories you can find genuine peace even in the storm. Mm. Oh god, yeah, totally. So if for example, if someone was going to co-host an award ceremony <laughs> and they had all these stories about you know everyone's going to judge me and I'm going to forget my my lines and stuff <laughs> there's there's comfort there's you know you can get comfort in that actually it doesn't really it doesn't really matter and you can use mindfulness in the moment to really like you mentioned earlier be grounded mm. I used to find public speaking quite terrifying but now I find it very relaxing really? because I've brought the meditation into that scenario mm. by feeling the ground under my feet as I stand there on the stage or, or as I'm walking on f really walk mindfully and really try to embody this present moment and that takes you beneath your fears into just the reality of you just standing in a room speaking because that's mm. all that's really happening yeah of course are you have you been meditating throughout this chat no, it's not <laughs> like I'm sort of you know in the zone it's more that I learn how to bring little moments of Mm. mindfulness into is becoming more of a habit bringing mindful awareness into little little micro moments throughout the day i, I love mm. to practice those yeah. i've been doing it i've been have you yeah yeah i guess i'm just better no, just <laughs> <laughs> no but it is like do you know what the the breathing thing has blown my mind a little bit because it's so simple and yet so many times throughout the day I just stop breathing mm. and um, never really think about my breathing mm. but even while we've been chatting I've been every every so often like just taking a breath in and mm. and focusing Being on it conscious yeah and I'm living a conscious to... life instead of an unconscious life right that's what it's about isn't it yeah we live so unconsciously so often and we just kind of float through life and then something hits us and we're not ready for it but the more consciously we can live the more we can really um, be uh, in charge of our own happiness and in charge of our own uh, path, have, mm. have more um, power in a good way, good power. John mm. Tipton, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been so great. I, I'm a great admirer of your work. Your books are fantastic. I, I listen to Sam Ten, the app, your app regularly so i'm used to hearing your voice uh, it soothes me greatly and i, I i've done a, quite a few meditations with my son, youngest son as well and um yeah it's always been very helpful and useful so thank you so much for your time and thank where you. can people find you because i'm sure so many people listening will want to um, obviously download your app sam sam 10 sam 10 yeah. buy your books but also just hear more from you um, so if you look me up online then then the the talks i give are usually advertised there and I, I i go around giving talks give workshops retreats everything's online these days you can yeah. find out find me somewhere yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i've got a website gelongtupton.com yeah. and on there it's it's all there thank you so much for your time thank really you. appreciate it thank you thank you thank you for listening to unquestionable We'd love to hear from you on social media by searching for Unquestionable Podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.